Well, good morning, Shore Church. Uh, it is great to be with you this morning. My name is Lee Francois. I am uh, one of the pastors at Crossridge Church in Surrey, and it is a joy to come to you at this time. Uh, the Shore is a sister church to Crossridge Church. We were planted uh, around the same time, and uh, I know that uh, during this season I have committed myself to pray for you as a church, and it's a great honor for me to come today and open God's Word for you. Uh, I'd just like to open with a word of prayer before we turn our attention there. Father, we want to thank you for this day that is before us. We want to thank you for this opportunity in particular, where we have this chance to, uh, to worship your name through song and now to hear from you through your word. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things from your law. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I do want to encourage you to uh, open your Bibles to the book of Judges and locate Judges chapter 3. You are in the beginning stages of a series that you have called on God's heart. The basic idea of that is to hear what might be on God's heart for your church during this season. I've come today with a message that God has laid on my heart for you. It's really a simple message. It might be one that you've heard before in the sense that you've heard the basic framework of it before. It's from a short passage in Judges chapter 3. And before I read it for you, let me begin by telling you a story. It was John's first day in prison. Mike, the prisoner in the adjoining cell, had obviously been in for a while. And as John sat in his cell thinking about what the long months ahead would be like, he heard Mike yell out, 31! In response, all the men in the nearby cells rolled off their beds with laughter. When the laughter had subsided, Mike bellowed out once again, 17! And again, laughter rang out throughout the cell block. After a while, John had to know why everyone would laugh when Mike simply called out a number. And Mike explained, you see, we've been in this place so long, we've heard every joke hundreds of times. And since we already know all of the stories and all of the punchlines, instead of telling the whole joke, we just call out a number and everyone knows exactly what we're talking about. All right, said John, let me try. And John called out at the top of his voice, number three. This time, however, no one uttered a sound. John raised his voice again, number three. Still no response. Hey, man, what gives? John asked Mike. How come when I call out a number, no one says anything? And when you do it, everyone can't contain their laughter. Well, John, replied Mike, some folks know how to tell a joke, and some don't. Now, that story comes from a book on preaching entitled, It's All in How You Tell It. And what the book stresses is that when it comes to preaching, delivery is critical. If a message is not presented well, all the study, all the writing, all the hard work will be of little value. Now, we know this about stories in general. Some stories are memorable, and some are utterly forgettable. And I want you to hang on to that as we read Judges chapter 3 and look at verses 7 to 11. Hear now the reading of God's Word. 
And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim, so the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Well, on first reading, that might sound like a colorless way to tell a story. I mean, there are no tensions in the plot. There's no character development. There's no dialogue or speech of any kind. There's no dramatization of events. There's no scenic presentation. There's no description of character flaws. Even when you compare that story with the rest of the stories in the book of Judges, this one is strikingly plain. I mean, there's no Ehud thrusting the dagger into a fat king's belly and having the the fat kind of close over it. There's no Jael driving a tent peg into the skull of a fugitive. There's no 300 men blowing their trumpets and defeating an army of thousands. There's no Samson with his eyes poked out, single-handedly bringing down the temple of Dagon with his final show of strength. Even Shamgar, whose life gets summarized in just one verse in the book of Judges, seems to have more action than this story does. The last verse of Judges chapter 3 says, After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. He killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. And can you say Sham? Wow, right? That's something you could make into a great battle scene in a movie. Othniel's account seems kind of ho-hum by comparison. So what is the deal with such a bare-bones account of Israel's first judge? Well, if it is true that it is all in how you tell it, maybe there is a reason this story is told the way that it is. And maybe part of what we're supposed to notice in this story is that God is the hero of the story. There's nothing here to distract us from that simple message. And maybe there's also something for us to learn about the way we tell our own story. I sometimes hear people say things like, you know, my testimony is really not that exciting. I grew up in a Christian home. I came to faith early in life. I never really strayed. Now, that story might not have all the pizzazz of I was saved out of a a life of drugs and crime, But it is every bit as compelling of a story as long as when you tell it, God is the hero of your story from beginning to end. 
Now, having said that the account of Othniel is deliberately brief, it doesn't mean that there are no meat or that there's no meat on the bones here. Remember stumbling upon this story and wondering, how would you, you know, preach on something like this story? But actually, as I studied this passage and read it and reread it, I've been struck again with the great truth that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for correcting, for rebuking, and for training in righteousness. Now, we're only covering five verses this morning, but there's a lot in these five verses, and I entitled this message, The Shape of Salvation, because this account of Israel's first judge gives us the basic framework for all the stories that will follow in the book of Judges, and in fact, all the stories throughout the Bible. Now, I've highlighted for you the cycle that we find in the book of Judges. That cycle looks like this. Israel does evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord then gives them into the hands of their oppressors. Israel serves their oppressor or oppressors for X number of years. Israel then in their distress cries out to the Lord. The Lord raises up a deliverer, someone to rescue them. The spirit of the Lord is upon that deliverer. The oppressor is subdued and the land has rest for X number of years. This is the basic pattern in the book of Judges up until chapter 17 where everything just kind of falls apart. This is the shape of salvation. I guess you could say it's a circle, but that's not really what I mean by the shape of salvation. This story about the first of Israel's judges functions sort of like a practice hand when you're learning a new card game. You get the basic rules, the basic shape of the game, and then you can deal with exceptions as you meet them later. This first story in Judges, the the story of the first judge, is the only one that contains all of the elements of the cycle. And every time there's a departure from the cycle, it is telling us something significant. There will be times When nothing is said about the Spirit of the Lord being upon a judge, that's significant. There will be times when there's no mention of the land having rest, that the deliverance was so short-lived. And there will even be times where there's no calling out to God. He just responds in His grace. But this story provides us with the basic framework. It presents us with the shape of salvation. Now, as I said at the start, sometimes we get so familiar with the shape of the gospel. We know the basic story. We actually don't let it penetrate our hearts again and again. So as we get into the specifics of the passage, I want to highlight four things that we discover about the shape of salvation. The first thing we learn about is the nature of human depravity. Verse 7 says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. Now, when we hear that word depravity, we might be tempted to think of something really dramatic. But the root of the problem for the Israelites, the root of their depravity, was that they forgot the Lord. It was their forgetfulness. 
And this forgetfulness is not just sort of an absent-mindedness, like when we can't remember where we put our car keys. To forget the Lord is to disregard or not to take into account. And this is a constant temptation and an ever-present danger for us that we simply forget the Lord. If you read through the book of Deuteronomy, you will find that the book of Deuteronomy is really a collection of Moses' instructions to the Israelites before they entered into the promised land. It's really a collection of sermons that Moses preached to the Israelites just before they entered into Canaan. Sixteen times in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses tells the Israelites to be careful not to forget or or to remember what God has done for them. An additional nine times, he tells them to be careful not to forget what God has done. Deuteronomy 4, 9 is a good summary of Moses' message where he says, only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them slip from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. See, human depravity begins when we forget the Lord. Moses knew that we are forgetful creatures. He knew that the people of his day would need constant reminders of God's grace. And this idea really functions both positively and negatively. And I would say, like the Israelites, we need constant reminders of what God has done for us. So let me just kind of add to that by, say, by saying that remembering is a key part of faith. Often when we think about faith, we think about looking ahead. You know, I'm looking into the future and, and what it might look like. But I would say that a key part of remembering is actually looking backwards. It's looking to the past. It's looking to all of those places where the Lord has met us before, where God has stepped in and provided for us. It involves reminding ourselves of what our lives were like before God intervened. See, the Israelites developed a strong culture of remembering. You can read the stories of the patriarchs and how after they had an encounter with God, they would erect an altar as a reminder. This was the place God met me. This was the place God provided. So when the Israelites crossed the Jordan River and entered the promised land, the first thing they did was to set up a rock pile as a reminder that God had brought them this far. The book of Joshua, in fact, is structured around the rock piles that the Israelites built to commemorate the different events in their journey to the promised land. And I would say that as Christians, we need to to develop our own culture of remembering. You know, when I think about taking a step of faith, I know that Often the most helpful thing I can do is just to look back at all the places God met me, all the times God provided for me. I want to be mindful of God's grace in my life at all times. As just a small example of that. Let me just say that, that I consider uh, my four kids to be one of the greatest blessings in my life. And to commemorate the birth of our first son, who's now 21, Uh, we planted an apple tree in our backyard. We called it the Joshua tree because his name was Joshua. 
When our second son was born, we planted another small apple tree. We called that one the Benjamin tree. When our first daughter was born, we planted a miniature cherry tree. We called that the Hannah tree. And when our fourth child was born, our daughter Rachel, we didn't have room for any more trees, so we, we have this small rhubarb bush, and we just call that Rachel's rhubarb bush. Look, often when I sit out on my back deck, and I just look at the trees and the rhubarb bush, I'm just reminded of God's grace in my life, that I have been given four kids who are walking with Jesus. I need those kind of reminders. We all need those kinds of reminders. And this is not just an Old Testament thing, a a thing that they did. The New Testament highlights for us the fact that we need to remember. We need to develop a culture of remembering around the thing that is most central to our faith. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. As he gives instructions about the Lord's Supper, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. See, there's always a danger that this might become routine for us. But I think the, the, the greater danger is that we simply forget. And so we need to go back again and again and remind ourselves of the simple truth of the gospel. But it's not just that remembering is important. It's that forgetting often has great consequences. And this passage gives us a picture of that. It says that the people forgot the Lord and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Then it says, therefore, in verse 8, therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, and the people served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. The idea here is that forgetting about the one true God led to serving these foreign gods, which ultimately led to serving foreign tyrants like Cushan Rishathayim. In the same way, dabbling with sin often leads us to a much greater bondage than we might have anticipated. The New Testament passage that most clearly makes this link between forgetting God And ending up in all manner of depravity is Romans chapter 1. And part of what Paul says there is, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. See, that is the nature of human depravity. We forget God and we end up serving other gods. But the news is not all bad in this passage. There's the second thing we learn about, and that is we learn about the abundance of God's grace. Now, grace might not be the first thing that comes into our minds when we read verse 8, where it says, Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, and the people served Cushan Rishathaim for eight years. 
So God gave the Israelites into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim. They wanted to serve the Canaanite gods, so God made them serve the Canaanite rulers. Now, we might think that's just justice, right? They're just getting what they deserve. I don't think it was justice, though. I actually think it was mercy. One of the books my wife and I read together way back when we were engaged was a book called A Severe Mercy, written by Sheldon Van Auken. And the book chronicles the love story between Sheldon and his wife, Davy. It's a compelling love story, but it's really a spiritual autobiography more than anything else. The couple attended Oxford University together. They developed a friendship with C.S. Lewis, and it was under Lewis's ministry that they both eventually became Christians. Now, they were a kind of free-spirited couple, but their lives started to change when Davy was diagnosed with a terminal illness. And Sheldon called the book a severe mercy because it was the discovery of that terminal illness that ultimately led them to faith in Christ. That's what prompted their questions about the purpose of living. Now, we might not often think about it or talk about it in those terms, but that's a severe mercy. And a severe mercy is what we find in this passage. God gives his people into the hands of Cushan Rishathayim so that they will come to understand just how desperate their situation is without him. God's discipline will sometimes seem severe to us, but its severity has a purpose. The Apostle Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians. He said, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. God's discipline is sometimes simply God's mercy. Well, there's a more direct way to see God's grace in this passage. Verse 9 goes on to say this. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The verse tells us that after eight years of servitude under this foreign tyrant, the people finally cried out to the Lord. Now, we might read that and think, well, this is repentance. A lot of people assume that the basic cycle in the book of Judges is apostasy, oppression, repentance, deliverance. But it's not, actually. The Hebrew word that's used here for cried out is used over 60 times in the Old Testament. And the word simply refers to a cry of distress or anguish over difficult circumstances. The reality was that the Israelites were moved by their distress more than by their depravity. So this isn't the cry of the prodigal, I've sinned against heaven and against you. This is the cry of someone in trouble. Get me out of this mess. And the reason I point this out to you is because it helps us better understand the nature of God's grace or the abundance of God's grace. He responds even to that at times. So they're moved by their distress, not their depravity, but God still raises up a deliverer for them. And the good news is that while we too are often moved more by our distress 
than by our depravity. God is moved by his compassion and mercy. Psalm 107 has become one of my favorite psalms because it reminds me that while we might get into our despair by different routes, God's response is the same. I want you to listen to a sampling of verses from Psalm 107. Verses 4 to 6 say, Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. Verses 10 to 13 go on to say, Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. Verses 17 to 19 say, Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. And then verses 23 to 28, where it says, Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away. In their evil plight, they reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. Each of those stanzas describes a different way of reaching a point of despair, but in each case, God's response is the same. It's deliverance. It's rescue. In the same way, it doesn't matter what it took to get us to that place to cry out to God. What matters is that God responds to our plea for mercy, our cry for help. And you might be there right now. I mean, you might be at a point where it feels like the the walls are kind of closing in on you. Maybe your sin has caught up to you. You need to cry out to God, not just for a temporary change in your circumstances, but for rescue, for deliverance, for salvation. God's grace is abundant. Third thing we learn about here is the power of God's deliverance. You know, these five verses are dominated by Kushan Rishathayim. He's mentioned by name four times in these verses, twice in verse 8 and twice again in verse 10. Now, it might seem repetitive or redundant to mention his name so many times in such a short span, but it's really done for literary effect. The point being made is that Kushan Rishathayim dominated Israel at this point. He was the dark cloud that hung over them at all times. Now, it might not be obvious the first time you read it, but Cushan Rishathayim was actually the strongest of all the oppressors we will meet in the book of Judges. He's described here as the king of Mesopotamia. 
And the significance of that is that Mesopotamia is the furthest distance from Israel of any of the foreign oppressors. And if Cushan Rishathayim's tentacles extended all the way into Canaan, it means that he ruled over a pretty vast kingdom. He was not just sort of a a local warlord from a neighboring town. He was a world-class emperor trying to assert his control and his dominance over the Israelites. On top of that, we know that Cushan Rishathayim was not a nice man. His name, as it is given here, is probably not his actual name. The literal translation of Rishathayim is double wickedness. The Hebrew rendering of Mesopotamia in verse 8 is Aram Naharaim. It literally means two rivers or of the two rivers. Now, you can hear the assonance between Naharaim and Rishathayim. So he is basically described as double trouble from double rivers or something like that. Now, whether this was a term of derision that the Israelites came up with to describe him, or maybe it was just the kind of reputation that he had earned, we're supposed to understand that this guy is bad news. He's a psychotic individual ruling over these people with an iron fist. Cushan Rishathayim held the people of Israel in his iron grip for eight years. But then the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Verse 10 then goes on to say, The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathayim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathayim. God delivers his people through this judge, Othniel. Now, interestingly, the name Othniel means the time of God. So they served this tyrant for eight years, but in God's perfect timing, he raised up a deliverer for them. Now, does that remind you of any other deliverer that God raised up? Any other savior that God raised up? Maybe when Paul says in Galatians, you see, at just the right time, God sent his son, born of a woman, when the fullness of time had come. We actually met Othniel back in chapter 1 of the book of Judges. There's really not a, a lot of information about him even there. You wouldn't be able to write a biography on him. And yet these two verses actually tell us all we need to know about him. Othniel possessed the only two qualifications that mattered. Firstly, we are told that the Lord raised him up. And secondly, we are told that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. So what was it that allowed this ordinary Israelite to overcome Israel's greatest menace? God's call and God's Spirit. And we need to hear this. 
we need to know that God's power is greater than whatever it is that might hold us. Kushan Rishathayim imposed his will on the Israelites for eight years. They lived in a state of constant intimidation and fear, brought about by this ruler known as double wickedness. But you know, the moon looks bright until you see the light of the sun. And God was about to demonstrate his power through Othniel. And what he was demonstrating that this tyrant, double wickedness, was nothing compared to the power of God. Now, I'm not trying to over-spiritualize the text, but I want to say to you that too often we underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit. When the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy about not shrinking back from preaching, from proclaiming the gospel, he said this, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power, of love, and self-control. We could paraphrase Paul by saying that God hasn't given us a fearful spirit, small s. He has given us the Holy Spirit, who is God's presence and God's power. Now, the way this applies to us is in relation to our bondage to sin. Our relationship to what it is that holds us captive. Some of you live in a cycle of sin. Your sin holds sway over you in much the same way that Cushan Rishathayim held sway over Israel. You feel completely dominated by it because every time you try to break free, it asserts its control again. And you might feel completely powerless against it. This is just the way it is. Change is not possible. But again, the moon looks bright until you see the light of the sun. And this is what we need to see. We need to see the power of God through the Spirit of God. This is essentially what the Apostle Paul says when he cries out like this at the end of Romans 7 and the start of Romans 8. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Do you know you've been set free? Jesus has freed us, not just from the penalty for our sin. Jesus has freed us from the power of sin and its dominance over us. Now, I don't know what holds you today or what might hold you today. It could be a kind of fear or a crippling anxiety. It might be that you're in the grips of a destructive pornography habit or some other addiction. God's power is greater than what holds us. The final thing we need to take note of in this passage, and that is the inadequacy of human saviors. Othniel was a good judge, right? I mean, we've already noted he was raised up by God. He was empowered by God's spirit. 
He's the only judge in the book of Judges who doesn't seem to be marred by some type of character flaw. In chapter 1, we learned that Othniel was from the tribe of Judah. The Israelites asked God who should go into battle first. God said Judah should go first because Judah is the head of the 12 tribes. Judah is consistently presented as the best of the tribes, the most faithful to God's commands. Othniel is also Caleb's nephew, so he comes from good stock. Verse 11 says that after his decisive victory over Cushan Rishathayim, the land had rest for 40 years. I mean, what a great judge. So this, the period that Othniel judged Israel was basically a time of peace for an entire generation. These are all good things. He seems like a good judge, but there was one problem. And we read about it at the very end of verse 11. So the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Now, this wasn't his fault. We don't read anything to suggest that it was his fault. He doesn't say that he ate a pound of bacon every day or anything like that. It just says that he died. And this was a problem. Look ahead, just one verse to verse 12, just the start of that next verse. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. See, this is the problem that plagued every one of Israel's judges. They would deliver Israel from the hand of their oppressors. The land would have peace for 20 or 40 or even 80 years. But when the judge died so did their deliverance. This is the problem with human savior, saviors. They cannot save us in the way Jesus can. I mean, even as we move further into Israel's history, and they move from having judges to having kings, the same basic problem persists. It doesn't matter if it was a good king or a bad king. That king always died. Peter's sermon from Acts chapter 2 helps us understand how Jesus is the only Savior who can save us absolutely. Peter said this, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the promise, or from the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. See, Jesus can save us to the uttermost because Jesus constantly lives to make intercession for his people. That's the good news that we find. This is the shape of salvation. It begins with our depravity. It's impacted by God's grace. And it's an eternal salvation because we have one who lives forever and ever. So let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you this morning. We recognize 
that on our own, we go our own way, we forget about you, we wind up in all sorts of trouble. And yet, in your grace, you hear us when we call out. In your grace, you raised up a Savior when the fullness of time had come. Jesus, who paid the penalty for our sins, gave us the Spirit and has freed us even from the power of sin. And Lord, we trust in no other Savior but Jesus. It's in His name we pray. Amen.